morning we're going to be thinking about uh, a transaction, if you will. Maybe not necessarily a financial transaction, but we're going to, the, the passage uses some words that talk about a financial transaction. We're going to, so we'll, we'll kind of play off of that a little bit. But it's still a transaction nonetheless, like an exchange of goods, if you will. Here's the transaction in the passage. How do we go from over here, sinners... People who are condemned by God, we, our sin separates us from God, we have all of our sin. How can we get over here, uh, exchange that sin for righteousness, for goodness before God? How do we get rid of the sin and become right with God? How does that exchange, how does that transaction take place? I've always kind of been fascinated by uh, the way that, that um, transactions take place, financial transactions just in our world, and the way that money works, and the way that things have value. Like, so here, here's, a, here's an old iPhone, so it doesn't have much value, but this would have value. What is the value of this, right? Well, it's really only worth what I can get someone to pay for it, right? And it's always interested me that we take pieces of paper, and we print some ink on them, we take chunks of metal, and we stamp some images on those, and, and we assign value to that, right? I mean, it's just paper and metal, and yet it can be worth whatever we say it's worth, whoever, the, whoever we is, the powers that be. Even think about like some of the tribal cultures that would exchange, uh, you know, seashells. That was their currency, and they could get transactions to happen. Or you go to a culture where bartering is really, you know, you go to an open market or something like that. I've always liked that. You, know, you could try to uh, exchange value and work down the price and things. I'm terrible at that. I love, I love the concept, and, you know, they say 10, I say say five, and they say ten a little meaner. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm not a good barterer. It doesn't work, you know, for, for me. But the idea that we could exchange, we could, what is something worth? What is the value of it? That kind of stuff. So uh, I, I brought with me this, this is my wallet right here. And, and so inside of this wallet are some of my um, credentials, so to speak, that have a certain amount of value. There's a couple of cards that will get you into a couple of accounts. There's some personal identification that could probably get you into some other accounts. So I, I don't know what the value of this is, but this is, in terms of financial, this is like my credentials right here. This is, this is my resume. This has a certain value. This has a certain worth. So we'll leave that right there. Uh, I, I was going to try to get another wallet, and I couldn't this morning. So this is, this is my wife's. Uh, we're going to... We're going to pretend, though, that this is Bill Gates' wallet and credentials, right? Or maybe Jeff Bezos of Amazon or something, or Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, because I'm sure they all borrow their wife's wallet, too. Like, uh, just by the way that works. So could you imagine the value of this wallet, right? If my name is Bill Gates, and these are my credentials, how much is this worth? And if I wanted to buy something of great value... The most important thing you could think of, I don't know what it would be, if it would be, you know, a vacation home or a piece of property or, I, I don't know what exactly I'd be trying to buy, but I'm going to make it a whole lot further with Bill Gates' credentials than with Aaron Hart's, right? Uh, but they, they each have a value, so I want you to think about that. And here's the last thing I want you to think about in terms of if value, if, if we can trade things based on whatever someone is willing to pay, I brought one more item of value with me. A bag of garbage. What do you think I could buy for a bag of garbage? And this is actually just recyclable materials. It's not even, I thought about going to the dumpster and getting stinky, nasty, smelly garbage. Or maybe even worse, you know, like when you got done cleaning out the horse barn, if you threw that in a garbage bag and you held that up to somebody, you know, it's like, I'd like to buy your car. 
got some good garbage. Would, would that work, right? Do you think you could buy the most valuable thing in the world with a bag of garbage? Keep that concept in mind. Why are we talking about this transaction as we get into this passage this morning? Here's what I want us to be thinking about. And I want to start with a verse in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, because there's a transaction that is facing all of us that we have to be ready and prepared for, all right? And, and here's what Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says. And Paul is writing this, and he says, For the wages of sin is death. And that idea of wages is what has been earned. Because of our sin, we, we've now, the payment is death. That there will come a day for each and every one of us, because we are sinners, that separates us from a righteous and holy God. And, and there will come a day when we stand before God in judgment of our sin, and he looks at us and he says, we are sinners. What we've earned, the, the value of our sin and the debt that is against us, is eternal death and separation from God. And every one of us will face that day. And yet the verse goes on and says that there's a free gift of God. The, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there's a certain way that we could get to this judgment day and that we stand before God. And rather than God looking at us, and, and, and other places in Scripture compare this to like a courtroom and that God as judge looks at us and that we would be condemned and guilty for our sin and we are sent uh, to an eternal place of suffering that for all of eternity in hell we would be separated from God. And yet, other places in Scripture, and, and um, Philippians is not going to use the word justified this morning, but it is going to use the concept. And the idea of justification that is over and over throughout Scripture is a legal term whereby you stand condemned before the judge, and the judge swings the gavel and declares someone who is guilty not guilty. The, the, the facts of the case are clear. You truly stand condemned before God, but instead you are justified, and, and now you have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How could that transaction take place? How is it that someone who's guilty and a sinner and condemned by God, how could the judge on that day, how would God look at us and say, you've been justified. Your free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul is going to explain some of this to the Philippians as we get into chapter 3. And he wants them to understand that under no circumstances could they ever earn that free gift through, through their own human merit, through their own personal credentials, through their own personal resume and value, they could never get eternal life through, uh, through their own efforts. Because there were some in the church who were explaining that you could, and they thought they had to work, and through their own credentials and own efforts, they had to get eternal life. And Paul is going to write this morning, and he's going to explain some of this in the chapter in strong language. He wants them to understand there's only one way that this transaction could take place, and that transaction is this. Here's the one thing that I want you to get as we go through this passage. Before I say it, I have to explain that in the passage, Paul's not using the word justified. He's using the word righteousness. And righteousness is the idea of goodness, that the judge on the final day would look at us, and even though we're condemned and guilty in our sin, he would see righteousness or goodness. He would see the righteousness of Jesus Christ on us, and that's what would cause God to say, swing the gavel and declare us justified because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So here's the one thing that you need to catch from the passage as we go through it 
this morning, and it's this. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Never through human effort, never through our own personal credentials, but righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Let's start going through this in verse 1, and sometimes, as, I, as you've heard me preach, I'll get to the end of the passage, and we'll do all the application together at the end. We're not really doing that this time. What I've explained already is the one point of application, and we're just going to walk all the way through it, that righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Here's what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers... That idea of finally is a little deceiving. Sometimes like when a preacher says for my last point and he keeps going half more. He's only halfway through the book. You could say of utmost importance because he's going to say finally again a whole chapter later. But based on everything he's said so far, here's, here's some important application. My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Apparently some of the things he's going to say, perhaps he's already communicated to them in person or in some other way. And he's like, listen, I want you to find your joy in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to repeat myself. It's safe for you. Some of the threats that the church has already been facing was internal uh, conflict and some of the things he's already walked through them. But now this is some external threat, a theological threat on the outside of the church. And he's like, listen, for your safety, I want to explain to you. And it's no trouble. I want you to find your joy in the Lord. So I'm going to repeat myself. And he says this in verse two, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Some of your Bibles maybe use the word beware, and, and it doesn't repeat it three times, but, but if you could see it in the original, it's very strong that three times he, is, there's this command, this warning, watch out, beware, look out, and there's what they need to look out for is this theological threat that's coming from outside, and, and, and he describes them as dogs, like wild dogs, not domesticated, safe little pets but dogs, those who do evil and those who mutilate the flesh. As we keep going, you'll understand what he means by that mutilate the flesh, but the, the, he's setting up this contrast that that's, that's who's on the other side. But verse 3, but we are the circumcision. And he explains what that means, and he gives three, here, here's our characteristics, here's what we do. We worship by the Spirit of God, number one. We glory in Christ Jesus. That's, that's who we boast in. We boast in Jesus Christ. That's our glory. And we put no confidence in the flesh. So do you see the contrast that Paul is setting up? He's saying, listen, what you've got to watch out for, there are dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. This is coming from outside the church. Remember, earlier in the book, he wrote about some people who who um, were something of, they were somewhat preaching the wrong, excuse me, they were preaching a largely sound gospel, but they just had personal animosity towards Paul. And remember he said, listen, we can rejoice because the gospel's going forward. Even though they don't like me, we don't need to get worried about this. This is not the same group of people. He's not going to call people like that dogs, evildoers, mutilators. This is uh, those that are compromising the integrity of the gospel. Uh, they, they, in fact, they've distorted the truth so much that they are preaching a false gospel. And if you see the way Paul writes in the book of Galatians to this group, this, this is the kind of threat he needs to look out for. And apparently what was going on, they, they were mutilating the flesh. And, and probably what this refers to uh, is that they were, under, they were declaring that they, uh, the Gentiles there in Philippi needed to practice the Old Testament rites of circumcision to be brought into the covenant family, that if they were truly 
truly going to be saved, they needed to follow through with circumcision. And so they were mutilators. Uh, and yet he says, no, we're the circumcision. We worship God by the Spirit. Our glory is in Christ. That's what we boast in. We're not boasting in our own credentials. We boast in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And he wants then, he, he then transitions into saying, listen, if you want to talk about confidence in the flesh, these dogs, evildoers, think that there's confidence to be placed in our own credentials of how we live for Christ. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, flesh, I have more. Look at Paul's credentials. What was the value? If he was going to try to buy righteousness before God, he had a lot of things going for him. He says this in verse 5. He was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. He, he, he kept the law with scrupulous detail. He, he wanted to follow every single aspect of the law. And because for us, we often hear of the conflict that Pharisees had with Jesus Christ, we have a very negative image of the Pharisees, and certainly those that rejected Christ and confronted him, we should have a negative image of them. But when Paul wrote that, if you were in that day and age, Pharisees were good, moral, upstanding people. They were the respectable ones in society. It looked like they were living rightly. And Paul says, as in terms of uh, my desire to follow the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he persecuted the church. Now, he, um, many of the other things on this list are not bad in and of themselves, but certainly persecuting the church was. But Paul's point is that he was zealous. That's how seriously he took his relationship with God. He thought that he was rightly protecting his relationship with God by persecuting the church. Um, as to righteousness under the law blameless, or I became blameless. So by following the law, he, he understood himself in terms of his credentials that he had become blameless. He'd kept the law as good as anyone could. And he said, if you want to talk about confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I certainly have attained that. Now, if we're going to understand what Paul is saying, there's kind of two concepts that we need to understand out of this passage to help us understand why this is important and what was taking place in the church there at Philippi. The two concepts are this. One, circumcision. What is, how does that relate to the law? How does that relate to righteousness? I'm not going to go far into detail, but if you understand circumcision from a medical point of view, how does that relate to God's law and being righteous or being a part of God's family? The second thing we need to understand is just the law itself. How did that work? So let me go to a few verses of Scripture that will try to help understand uh, some of these things. The first thing we need to understand is circumcision. So here's where you see circumcision come into place in terms of God's story and how it relates to God's family is Genesis 17. So at this point, God is giving instructions to his people, the children of Abraham, Israelites, uh, even though they haven't yet fully formed fully as a nation, they haven't yet been given at the law. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and you see some of that in that original covenant that God made with Abraham. And once you get to Genesis 17, God goes a little further, gives a little bit more detail about this covenant. And when you get to verse 9, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. 
This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision for the Israelites of the Old Testament was a sign of the covenant, that through the cutting of the foreskin that, that um, they were a part of God's family. And he keeps going in the next verses, and he explains very clearly that he wants every male who's a part of the family, every single one has to be cut. Even the foreigner living in their house, even the slaves. Everyone? Yes. God makes it very clear that every single one needs to go through this sign of the covenant. And so then you get to the next, uh, skipping a few verses, you get to verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And if you could see the words, there's this play on words that makes a little bit more sense. What God is saying as he establishes covenant with the Israelites is that anyone who is not willing to be cut will be cut off from the people of God. Make sense? And so there's this play. So that's how circumcision came in. It, it was a sign of the covenant. And so in the Old Testament, the, everyone who wanted to be a part of God's family needed certainly to follow that relationship, needed to follow that physical sign of the covenant. And so here's what's happening then when you get to the New Testament. And you see this in the book of Galatians. You see it in Acts chapter 11, that now Jesus has come. Now the gospel has come. Even Gentiles are being included in into the truth of the gospel. What Ephesians write about is the mystery of the gospel, that, that now even Gentiles could be included in the family of God through the truth of what Jesus Christ has done. And uh, there's now this conflict, though, that some Jews are saying, no, 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 if you want to be a Christian, yes, what Jesus did on the cross, but also the law. You must be circumcised. If you want to be included in the family, you have to still go through this sign of the covenant. And it caused conflict in Acts chapter 11. It caused conflict in, in the church at Galatia. And here, Paul writes to the church at Philippians, and he wants them to understand, listen, th these are dogs. These are evildoers. They're mutilators. We put no confidence in the flesh. Listen, I've got credentials. He runs through his list, and he says, that won't get you righteousness. And, and yet he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, we are the circumcision. So Paul was Jewish. He was circumcised the eighth day. You saw that in his list of credentials. But he's writing to the church at Philippi. And, and they would be Gentiles. They would be uncircumcised. They're the ones who's having Judaizers come in and say, you need to go through this. So why could he say we are the circumcision? Well, it's because Paul understood that that, that confidence in the flesh didn't carry over into the New Testament. He understood that there was a new covenant that God would make. And so I've got verses from the book of Jeremiah then that explain this. Jeremiah chapter 31 and here is what is said about the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now there's aspects that we're still waiting to be fulfilled, and especially for the Israelite nation, but this new covenant is now been initiated through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so Paul understood that Jesus Christ's death, his shed blood, was the cup of the new covenant. This now is a relationship that God has created. And now the Old Testament rites of circumcision, no longer, that's not how you got into the family. That's not how you became a member of the child, a member of the family of God. And Paul wants them to understand those are the, that are still saying you have to go through this. They're mutilators. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're compromising the gospel because what Jesus Christ did isn't enough. So we need to understand what circumcision is. We also then need to understand, well, what was the purpose of the law? Why did God give the Israelite nation the law? So this brought us up to Genesis 17. Remember, they haven't yet been... uh, Once you get to the end of the book, they're in captivity in Egypt, and Exodus brings them out of the land. That's where God starts to form them as a people. You get to the book of Leviticus, and God's going to give the Israelite nation a law. You see, there's this tension. How could a holy God, if Israel is his people, how could a holy, righteous God live in community and relationship with a people? Well, that's why they needed to have a law. That's why they needed to have commands. That's why they needed to have the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. And here's how the sacrifice is. When you sin, here's the covering. But listen, the law did not save the Old Testament Israelites. It wasn't a means of earning salvation. They were still saved by grace through faith. And yet the object of their faith for us, we look back at the cross and what Jesus Christ accomplished, and they had to have faith looking forward in a Messiah, and yet the law could never save anyone. No one could ever perfectly fulfill the law. Romans chapter 3 verse 20, and I want you to see this verse. Romans 3.20 tells us this is what, so how does the law play in? Here's how the law plays in. Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being can be declared righteous through the law. Since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. What did the law show? The law showed what was good and right. It was a measuring stick. The law showed everybody, you fall short, and the wages of that falling short is death. It's only the gift of God that's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the law then simply shows them how they've messed up. And here you have Judaizers coming into the church at Philippi, and they're saying, you still need the law. If you're a Gentile and you want to be in the church, you need to be circumcised. And, and, and they weren't, uh, it wasn't enough for them to see Christ and his work on the cross. They weren't attaining righteousness through faith. They were still thinking they could work their way to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we need to then come back now to our passage in Philippians. That, under, that helps you understand how circumcision played in, what the purpose of the law was. And now Paul says, after he runs through all of his 
credentials. He had a long list. What does he say about that confidence that he had? Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see where Paul's confidence was? What is it, was it in his list of credentials? No. His confidence was in Christ and the righteousness that only could be attained through faith in what Jesus Christ accomplished for him on the cross. And I want you to see the word picture that Paul uses in, in, in verse uh, 7 and 8. He's talking about gain. He's talking about loss. In verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What is he saying? That list of credentials, that list of things, he counts them as a loss. It's not that they were bad in and of themselves. It's not to think, again, the persecuting of the church was bad, but the zealousness was not. His desire for righteousness, not bad. His desire to keep the law, not bad. What was bad is if his confidence was in those things. That's where it became evil. That's where it became misplaced. And he says, listen, let's, if anybody wants to put confidence in the flesh, I've got credentials. I count all of them as law. Loss. And that word loss has to do with the idea of almost like a financial penalty, almost like a financial debt that he, that he is now fined all of those credentials. If you look at verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss or the payment of all things. I'll take all of my credentials, I'll turn them in. In fact, he says, I'll count them as rubbish garbage, waste. You could even use this word to talk about animal dung. And he says all of those credentials, which aren't bad in and of themselves, they're rubbish, they're garbage. So I want you to look at this picture. Here's what Paul is saying. All that list of credentials, it's garbage. I lose all of it. This is my payment. I find all of my credentials, and what do I receive? I receive Christ. That's my financial profit. That's my gain is the concept uh, in verse 8. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What kind of transaction happens that way? You give your garbage, you receive the greatest benefit everyone, anyone could ever have. Christ and his surpassing worth is the greatest thing that could ever be received. That's what it is that will allow you to stand that day before the judge when your sins condemn you and the judge would look at you and say, righteous. Why? Because he sees the righteousness of Christ. And it will only happen through faith. You cannot get that kind of righteousness through your credentials. It only comes through faith in Christ. In fact, anything that you think is good is, is really garbage. 
And in the transaction, you receive Christ, and that only comes through faith in Christ. And that's why he says, being found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. For Paul, this was his greatest desire, that he wanted to have Christ. He wanted the righteousness that would only come from faith. What does that mean, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead? I'm glad you answered the question. you got to come back when we get to the next verses. Uh, when we get to some of the, uh, as he keeps going, he'll further explain what some of that means in verse 12 and in the following verses, so we're not going to camp out on that too long. But I want you to see this, that listen, here's what it was for Paul. For Paul, he wanted the believers there at Philippi to understand it was never their works, it was never their credentials, and there were opponents of the gospel creeping in, and they were saying, listen, it's Jesus plus. you got to go back to the law. And so we as a people want to be very, very careful that we never add things to the gospel. Is your faith in Jesus Christ, excuse me, is your assurance of salvation, your hope that your sins have been forgiven, is it solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ? Nothing else, nothing added to that. Is your faith solely in what Christ has done? Or do you think that your works, your credentials, are somehow adding something? There would be doctrines and beliefs uh, that, that say that somehow our own effort add to the work of Christ, or that you must be baptized to be saved, or there's other things that come into play. And yet Paul is saying that's legalism. That's, that is a, a, a denial of the gospel. And I want you to understand why he's, he's saying this, who he calls dogs, who he calls evildoers. In our concept, we tend to think of legalism as anyone who has more conservative rules than us, or a little bit more strict than we are. And we say, hey, that's legalism. Well, that's not legalism, according to this understanding of what Paul is saying. Legalism would be when we place our confidence in those rules and standards that somehow that brings us righteousness or a right standing before God. We all have to have standards. It wasn't that the law was bad. What was bad was their confidence in the law to bring them righteous standing before God. And Paul says that kind of, of righteous standing before God only comes through faith in Christ. So is your faith in Christ this morning? Have you come to a place in your life where you've seen your your sin and your need of a Savior, and you realize that there is no credentials of your own, no matter how much good work you do, you cannot attain righteousness before God. The only thing you have to offer is garbage, and you consider that loss in order that you would gain Christ because your faith and trust is in the fact that Christ died for you and he rose again, and you can find forgiveness of sins and eternal life simply by trusting in what Christ has done on the cross. I pray that that's where your hope is. is your, remember, as Ephesians says, for we are saved by grace through faith. Is your faith in the finished work of Christ? Please let it be that. Don't even be deceived that, that because at some point in your life you said a prayer or walked an aisle or responded in some physical way to a gospel invitation, don't let that be your confidence that you're saved because of that physical response to the gospel. Doing that and then showing up to church every week, that doesn't save you. 
that doesn't mean that if you walked an aisle or raised a hand or physically responded to the gospel, I'm not saying you're not saved. Don't hear me say that. That's part of my testimony of how I responded to Christ, that I prayed a prayer of salvation. But listen, that is, that is the means by which your faith is expressed. You're saved by grace through faith. And if that response to the gospel is when your faith was expressed, then praise God, your faith is in Christ and what Christ accomplished on the cross for salvation. Brothers and sisters, let us be people who who realize that our assurance that someday we can have our sins forgiven only comes through what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Because this, what, what was going on at the church in Philippi is something that has been going on since the beginning of human history. You see, the church at Philippi and these Judaizers were creeping in and they said, we want to contribute to our salvation. We think we need to work to give us this right standing before God. We know that our sins condemn us and perhaps we can contribute to that by following parts of the law. Well, this is something that has been going on since Adam and Eve in the garden. If you remember back to that story, do you remember at the beginning of Genesis when Adam and Eve were caught in their sin? And their eyes are exposed. And it says then they they saw their nakedness. And so as they feel that shame and they realize there's a problem. Sin has entered the picture. How did they try to take care of that sin? Do you remember what they did? They said, we can take care of this sin. They sewed together fig leaves. There. We can try to restore things again. We can try to get back to a right relationship. That wouldn't work. God has to come in, and God, through grace, he, he, he kills animals and makes a covering for them of clothing, right? Simply a foreshadowing of what's to come, that, that one day Jesus Christ would have to perfectly take care of sin, because we could never on our own take care of our sin and the debt that stands against us before God. See, Jesus wasn't interested in us being a people who could work our way to God. He knew that would never happen. Our hearts had to change. It wasn't an external list of rules. It wasn't about building up credentials to get saved. It was simply about hearts changing, and God had to do that through the person of Jesus Christ. That's part of Jesus' point in the book of Matthew, when Jesus is going through the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what he says? And I want you to see this in Matthew chapter 5, and here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, as he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus' point was to show the ultimate purpose of the law, that, it, that he didn't come to wipe it away. He came to say, look, the law shows that only Jesus can fulfill the law. And so three verses later, he says this in 520, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you were an original listener on that day when Jesus is going through that sermon, and he said, your righteousness, your goodness, has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You would have, your jaw would have hit the floor. There is no way to have more credentials than the Pharisees. There is no way to keep the law better than they did. And Jesus says, you have to have a better righteousness. Where is that righteousness going to come from? 
It's only going to come through Jesus. And that's his whole point in the Sermon on the Mount. Because you remember? And he starts giving illustrations. The law says, thou shalt not kill. And some people look at that and they say, great, I haven't killed anyone. I've checked that list. There's my credential. I'm not a murderer, right? But Jesus said, if you've ever even been angry with someone in your heart, then you're guilty of that sin. See, Jesus' point was not that you had to keep the law perfectly to get saved. The point of the law was none of you can keep it. All of us are guilty. We will all stand before God condemned. And Jesus' point is only what he did on the cross could provide a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So here's our one point. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. And I pray that you are here this morning with your faith in the finished work, what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And if you're realizing you've never done that, You've never trusted in Christ for salvation. You need to turn from your sin. Call out to God in prayer. You can do it silently where you are. You can speak with one of us afterwards. I'll be down in the front. Would love to speak with anyone that has that spiritual need. That you realize, I'm a sinner. There is nothing I can do to earn my way to God. But I realize Jesus Christ died in my place. And he rose again. And his death provides salvation. It provides a righteousness that I could never attain on my own. And you place your full confidence in that. And by faith, then you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's what Paul wanted the church at Philippi to place their confidence in. Because otherwise, they would deny the gospel by those that said uh, they needed to add something in their own human efforts. We'll go further in this as the next time that we get to gather, uh, the next time I get to preach for um, the next few verses of Philippians because he's going to keep explaining what some of this means, that by any means possible that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your gracious truth that righteousness can only come through faith in Christ. Lord, we recognize that um, we are sinners. There's nothing that we can do of our own human effort to find salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sins. It's only through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And I pray that each and every one of us that have placed our faith in Christ, that we would again just um, be encouraged with the truths of Scripture of what Christ has accomplished for us. And that's where our faith would be. Father, for those that may be here this morning and need to make a decision to trust in Christ for salvation, may you convict them of that need, that on their own they can never do enough. They can never earn their salvation. They will never have enough credentials to make their life better or to self-improve to the point that you will be pleased with them. Father, they need Christ and salvation. May they find that through faith in the finished work of cross. By your grace, save people today. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.